to Look Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when the video on the top shelf that everyone wanted to get out was Keith Allen's Red Tape. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today is comedy historian and storyteller Jem Roberts. Jem, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, I've just come to the end of my fourth book of comedy history, which is the official Fry and Laurie story, Soupy Twist. And uh, the second I finished that, I've just moved on to a big project called Tales of Britain. If you, right now, for any reason, uh, should want to read a collection of English, Scottish and Welsh stories, fairy tales, folk tales, however you want to put them, legends, and you wanted to go into a shop and buy one, you literally can't. That's the main point. It's just absolutely ridiculous that they there is no UK story treasury. But uh, what Tales of Britain is, is 77 tales all in one book. And also, because a lot of these stories are based in the landscape, it's like a roadmap of Britain with stories and tourist guides to the location of each story as you go around. But uh, the icing on top of the cake as well is when you start to retell these ancient folk tales, a lot of them have been distorted over the years in a million different ways, and they're full of misogyny and racism. And, and it's one of those difficult things where you can be proud of your culture, but obviously not nationalistic. So it's we're sort of uh, ring-fencing our treasury of legends and tales from the UKIPers of this world. So whether you're first generation or 50th generation, talesofbritain.com, go there and uh, support this campaign. Because that's what it is, really. It's, it's a campaign. It's not just a book. Well, that's a good pitch and a good cause. But we're on to your first choice now, which, given kind of the... The gentle, reflective, whimsical nature of the two books that you've just written. We're going to go for something that kind of fits in with that. Ow. I haven't heard that in a long time and it still provokes exactly the same reaction to me. That was number one for three weeks in 1994. I don't think anyone really remembers it now. Jem, what was that? That was dupe. It was the start of 94, so I was still only 15 at the time. And I danced to dupe until I thought my calves were going to explode. Basically, as a 15-year-old schoolboy, I've been getting served in pubs since I was 14. But if you wanted to actually go out and have a bit of a dance and really tank up on martini and cider, what we had to do was all pile into a minibus and go off to somewhere like Honorberry Village Hall to the Young Farmers Dance, where there'd still be like silage on the floor and stuff. And and big plastic glasses of, of sort of 50p a pint cider and dupe, which seemed to be on a loop. But the thing is, I, I had a strange attitude to music when I was a teenager because this was the 90s and uh, I just didn't really take much notice of what was happening in the charts at all because I was so obsessed with Fry and Laurie and Jeeves and Worcester and 20s music generally that I used to mainly listen to Irving Berlin and George and Ira Gershwin and Cole Porter and stuff like that at home and I'd sort of dress up like Bertie Worcester and pretend it was 1929 and I didn't really have a kind of a, a fire lit under my ass for modern music until I suddenly realised what Britpop was in about 95 and the Beatles were invented in 95 as well if you remember that Tim Well what's on my mind about this is you know you're saying you were quite into sort of the PG Woodhouse kind of world did you like Dupe because it gave you the chance to imagine that you were frogging away in the Drones Club with Tuppy Glosser No no exactly 
because you had to go out and you had to dance and you'd have your hi-ho silver lining and all that kind of thing but when dupe came along it's just like fuck this is my era and i could do you know i as a big fat drunk 15 year old i could approximate a charleston in the young farmer's dance what's interesting for me is from a completely different point of view i was a couple of years older i had already discovered Britpop by that point and i'd been through sort of the rave thing when it was all chicago house by then i think they'd run out of things to sample so you know you had things like dupe you had Poing by Rotterdam Termination Source, which nobody remembers, which is basically a spring over some drums. But it, it felt like it had become novelty music when, you know, a couple of years earlier it had been something that the government were actually frightened of and were trying to legislate against. So I think, you know, David Mellor would have had a nice dance to dupe, wouldn't he? If it got from some kind of great big warehouse outside Croydon or somewhere to a little village hall in South Shropshire, then yes, it was a novelty by that stage, yes. Anyway, that is the thing. For all the... F- there is all this jazz in the draft season if you try and tell somebody about dupe nobody believes you but that was the only thing that could get me up dancing apart of course from any song recorded by Vic Reeves oh you've actually done a link for me there because I was trying to think of something about computer games spreading out to rural areas which didn't really work here's a bit of the game we're going to sort of talk about That was Dizzy, the brilliant 1987 game by Codemasters, written by the Oliver Twins, who wrote a lot of great games. But we're not actually talking about Dizzy as such, more the games that came in its wake and just copied it directly. Jem, can you tell us what a couple of those were? They're called action-adventure games. It's just a whole genre of video games which is almost non-existent to this day. RPGs get close, but they're kind of side-scrolling platformer RPGs. And all it is, all it comes down to, uh, the Dizzy games are, you know, the Oliver Twins invented the Dizzy games, and they are the, the, the paragon. But then there was Slightly Magic, and Seymour Goes to Hollywood, who was a replacement for Dizzy originally. It was going to be a Dizzy game, and they got bored of the egg, so they just stuck the splat in and called him Seymour. But then I looked up, I thought it was called Rabbit. There was a game where you're just a rabbit trying to survive, like water chipped down. That was called Lop Ears. Blink is Scary School, there's another one, where you're a, a, a ghost walking around solving spells and everything. But what it comes down to is, it's these sort of platforming adventures with lots of monsters to avoid or kill and things like that. So, you know, like Mario or anything else. But it has a kind of RPG element that you're collecting items and it's a lateral narrative puzzle-solving skill, which you just don't get in almost anything else. So what it comes down to in the Dizzy game, for instance, you try to go west, but there's a pissed-off troll in your way. You try to go right, and there's a dinosaur that's going to eat you, and then there's a broken bridge going off through the doorway. And you look in your bag, and you've got a packet of prawn cocktail crisps and a pickaxe and never-ending glue or something. And you've got to go around looking for items, and considering we're talking about the spectrum here we're talking about uh, you know 48k games it was more immersive than the most kind of up-to-date adventure you can imagine because something like skyrim all you're doing is traveling from place to place going down in dungeons and slashing a lot of skeletons to death and maybe doing a few weight games and stuff like that but dizzy i mean when the oliver twins created dizzy they should be celebrated like miyamoto you know for what they actually invented in 1987 i was only nine years old but i was obsessed with those games they should be on your 
phone right now to be able to play, so I wish people remembered that. Well, they should, and so should one that I really loved, which nobody remembers it now to the extent that Radcliffe and McConey recently refused to believe that it existed when the caller mentioned it, which was Nodes of Yesod, or as a speech synthesizer said at the start, Nodes of Yesod by the Odin Computer Graphics Team. Which, if I remember rightly, he was a spaceman stranded in a network of caves. I think he was getting pieces of a map. But it was even to the extent of if he jumped, he somersaulted in an unpredictable way. So you had to use your brain about that as well, you know. Where is he going to land if I jump here? I loved that game, and uh, it was quite a big thing if someone in school said they'd finished it, and everyone would be like, prove it. What was that on? I had that on the Spectrum. It was probably on the Commodore 64 as well, where the speech synthesizer probably worked. Although I do remember the Spectrum. Spectrum Ghostbusters game also started with (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they weren't that hot on actually doing anything worthwhile when big tie-in licenses came in for games because you ever played the Give My Regards to Broad Street one? All it is is you're Paul. You're Paul McCartney. Yeah, you've got to wait at tube stations for musicians to turn up and then like basically say, oh hello do you want to be on my album? And like take them to well, what I assume was supposed to be Abbey Road and that's all that happens. It's still better than the Frankie Goes to Hollywood game. Well, I have a friend, hello Gareth, who was on the previous edition of this, who swears blind that he loved the Frankie Goes to Hollywood game, he thought it was the best game ever. Okay, well, when you're playing a computer game on the Spectrum back in 1987, what better way to keep yourself refreshed than with a glass of this? This is the voice of Kumar, representative of the Ashtar Galactic Kumar, speaking to you. For many years, you have seen us as knights in the stars. We speak to you now to say what things we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. Right, well that's... I don't know what alien have put in there. Probably Gilbert the alien, given the time frame. But I couldn't find a clip of this because I have no idea what it was. And the internet has thrown up nothing at all. Jem, what was Alien Blood? I swear that it was the kind of thing that you would see advertised in the back pages of comics like It's Wicked and Blimey It's Slimer. And it was a sort of a green powder that you could only send off for by the post. And it, it was like squash. It was it was sort of Kool-Aid, I guess. This would have been in junior school age and I was at a packed lunch personally at junior school we always used to sort of you know share and my friend just turned up for this was like one fortnight in 1988 I would guess one of my best friends turned up and he'd sent off for this alien blood and it he sort of had it in his flask and we shared it all out and it was just the most incredible divine what what it was it tasted exactly like alien blood hang on how can you say it tasted exactly like alien blood well you know it i couldn't really put my finger on what alien but it was it was clearly alien blood of some kind it wasn't fizzy it was a sort of a dark green color and in this world of sort of quattro and umbungo it was a distinct flavor that was none of those things and it wasn't you know just sort of a sugar flavor it was its own flavor they all just loved it and drank it all up and never heard of it ever again. Well, I mean, I'm guessing it was outlawed by those Eurocrats in Brussels in the early 90s, but it is true that this fascinating lost world of things that used to be ubiquitous in small lads where they've disappeared without trace. I mean, my big one was in computer magazines. They used to advertise this album called Galactic Nightmare, and I'd always wondered... 
what on earth that was until Trunk Records actually re-released it last year. And the one that Ben Baker, who has been on this twice now, I didn't even mention this, the one he's obsessed with is, you'll remember this, in Viz, there were always adverts for some kind of legal high called Rocco Can, with a sort of uh, Clive Anderson with her figure advertising it, the comic strip character called Sigmund. He'd say, you know, sorry, I'd like to tell you about the benefits of... <coughs> and then there'd be all stars around his head. And genuinely, me and him spent hours wondering, did anyone buy that? Did they smoke it? What was it like? Did they stay sane afterwards? I remember they always used to advertise these kind of flat metal... They looked like cards, but they were supposedly pipes. And I didn't really know what weed was or anything like that at the time. So, But I always just thought, you know, if I'm ever cool one day when I'm grown up, I'm going to have one of those flat metal pipes things to smoke illicit substances in. Now, I wonder if small ads of that kind even do still exist because you know there's it's pretty much swallowed up by the internet now. There was a time when years and years ago when I used to do quite a popular fanzine my main way of drawing attention to it was to actually buy adverts in select and queue. It's always startling when I'm in an Oxfam and I see a big pile of copies of Mojo and I think there's one that I advertised in but that's the whole idea of that now just seems ludicrous to me. There are no small ads anymore because there are so few magazines, or certainly the kind of specialist magazines that we, you know, used to have these interesting things in. Yeah, I don't really want to know what was in the small ads in specialist magazines. That's something we're probably best avoiding. Although I did once stumble across a porn flexi disc in a record shop. <laughs> I bought it. It was the least erotic thing ever. But yeah, Alien Blood. Don't imagine many people listening will have any idea what that was. But something else that presumably was in your lunchbox, Gem, was a bit more ubiquitous, and it was this. Mmm. Very delicious wheels. How do I make my wheels? Please, welcome, and join me, G-Steps Cooking. I'm going to share with you how we make wheels Okay, well that's something that, I'm one of the writers on TV Cream, and we have had so many inquiries about these over the years, and I don't actually remember them disappearing, that's the weird thing, but obviously they did. Gem, Nibbit Wheels, tell us more. I guess they must have disappeared before it became the norm for all crisps to be in foil packs, because I don't remember them ever being in anything but sort of translucent bags. But the tragedy of the lack of wheels is that, um, you know, there's nothing better than buffet food. The reason that I'm a fat bastard is because not because of chips or you know curries or anything like that it's because i could spend my whole life just at other people's wedding receptions not that i know the people there but just you know salads and breads and crisps and nuts and all that kind of stuff no protein at all just uh, you know just carbs and when i was a kid you needed wheels to make a sandwich car and now there is nothing there are no edible ingredients that you could use to make a sandwich car anymore because you'd obviously you'd have your sandwich a sort of ham sandwich and twiglets obviously still the cornerstone of my existence i don't know about anyone else's but you could have these sort of twiglet axles and then you put the wheels on either side and they they even they had exactly the right sort of dimension hole in the middle they look like little cartwheels with spokes i'm going to call this into dispute though because when did anyone ever manage to get an intact wheels out of the bag they were always broken into quarters and eights 
see, in my world, they, they were always sort of put out in bowls. They were very much a kind of a party food. So uh, they, they were they were cherished. They were treated with respect in my eyes. It would be nice to see them come back. Cause I was just thinking about this earlier today. Crisps that we consigned to history, but they just come back to life like Ringo's. But they seem to have, to me, the same recipe. There's a certain kind of overly salty, smooth feel to them that I remembered as a kid. And it was just weird that something, that the ingredient, you know, the recipe seemed to have just been lost in about 1988 or something, suddenly comes back. And another one is snaps. I never saw any tomato snaps between, say, 1986 and 2012. I had the snaps swimming bag. Did you? With, with the kind of the, the pre-cool dragon on it. Uh, what I don't understand is they, they brought back the, the tomato snaps but no cheese snaps anywhere they're like a pound for a big bag of eight and they're everywhere so if they can bring back snaps and they can bring back Ringo's as they seem to be in about 1985 then it would be lovely if somebody could find the uh, recipe for damn good wheels because they were a perfect kind of consistency and they only came in two flavours that I remember there was a Mexican spicy which I wasn't that keen on but then there was vinegar and onion not onion not cheese and onion not spring onion not pickle onion vinegar and onion flavor that i've not tasted since 1988 no there was that which is such a bizarre flavor but the third one was more ridiculous still do you not remember what that was it was natural (laughs) oh right exactly like nibbit wheels would be if you found them in the wild presumably i think that was just ready salted yeah yeah, natural (laughs) Natural squirrel wheels i'd quite like to see them bring back wickers and griddles to be honest with you which very few people seem to remember. Riddles were sort of in a, like a waffle iron sort of shape. Can't remember what flavour they were. Wickers were very thin, very, very crisply baked sort of wicker baskets. And the advert had like a jester singing the wonderful thing about wickers at the tune of the wonderful thing about tickers. Well, I thought I knew my crisp. Well, the sort of thing that you would have been eating around the time that this strange phenomenon happened... doing Sweet Little Mystery, but as you might not have heard it, that's from the Memphis Sessions, which, before they became a team band, their record company sent them out to work with Willie Dixon, who was a legendary sort of blues producer, and they got partway through their first album and something they thought, hey lads, you might want to sort of, you know, make it a bit more Radio 1 friendly. I'll put that in because your next choice is Wet 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 actually being any good. They were clearly a teeny bop band at the time, and I shouldn't have been into them at any stage, but when you actually look at their songbook and compare it to almost any other teeny bopper band you could think of, they've got the greatest songbook of I mean, Gary Barlow never wrote a song as good as Sweet Surrender or Angel Eyes. To make it slightly more personal, Tim, when I was a kid, I'm the youngest of three boys, and my next eldest brother, Tim, we shared a room for most of our lives up to the age of 14 in my case, and there was a huge poster of Wet 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 from Number One magazine that Tim had put up there. Tim was the bigger fan, and he had money, and he used to actually buy the cassettes like popped in 
and sold out. And as you say, the Memphis sessions. And he used to play it all the time. And I, I was still probably listening to Disney tunes or something at that age. But it kind of rubbed off a bit. They're just really good original melodies. And the other strange thing about Wet Wet Wet, because I did look at Wikipedia quite recently, <laughs> is they started out doing Clash covers and with a scritty politty name. And they're coming from Glasgow and they're doing this kind of soulful stuff that their original songs, which seemed to be kind of split between the band as well. They didn't sort of have one song right. They're doing this stuff that could have been written by Smokey Robinson. You know, take away some of the more plinky-plonky 80s instrumentation. And they should be standards. Well, it's interesting you should say that, because this is something that nobody believes me about, apart from sort of my friends who we knew at the time who were NME readers as well, was Wet 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 and Simply Red for maybe about 18 months when they first appeared, where NME bands were frequently featured in it. Wet, 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 were on Sergeant Pepper knew my father alongside, you know, the three wise men and the fall, and Frank Sidebottom. They, they were considered quite credible. And also, their first appearance on record anywhere ever, as far as I know, was on... A I think it was a compilation called The Beat Runs Wild, where they were alongside people like Tom Verlaine. Now, it wasn't aimed at number one readers, that. It's interesting, I mean, obviously I think they embraced this direction they were pushed in, but they kept being good for a bit. When would you say the crunch came? When did the scales tip? Probably not long after I stopped sharing a room with my brother. To be honest, I mean, there's still some good songs like the um, Caught Up in Your Wishing Well. Da, 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 da. See, I like that one, yeah, it, especially when it goes at the proper tempo. Stuff that's in Pop Tin Sold Out, which also is one of the greatest album names of all time, as far as I'm concerned. The one thing I will say about Wet 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 is they were shit at names because there's so many great songs, but every time you name them, Angel Eyes. Sweet Surrender, Sweet Little Mystery, Temptation. Every one of their bloody songs has got a totally ripped off title, which doesn't do you any good at all. I just do not understand any band that write, comes up with an original melody, an original lyric, and then calls it Stand By Me, or Cry Me A River. Oh, I've just written a song in the 21st century. What's it called? Cry Me A River. So, wet, 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 lose marks there. But the actual songs, you know, I have some uh, musical ability. And I love to strip songs down and, you know, bring them just down to chords and, and, and words and sing them. And wet, wet, wet songs are standards. They, they really should. Something like Angel Eyes. It's like four chords. But uh, what they did with those four chords really kind of deserve... I mean, we, when we live in a world in which people would probably naturally give more respect to an outfit like even, you know, UB40 or Level 42, which I'm, I'm not against them, or dire straits, things that were that are maybe seen as a, a little kind of uh, passe, I don't know. But Wet 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 aren't even accorded that level of respect. Wet 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 is, is a comedy band name now, really, for almost any purpose. I mean, I'm sure they still have loads of fans who can go and see them live when they stop fighting. Well, uh just before we move on to your last choice I should just say that funnily enough it was them stripping down somebody else's song that turned me against them which was in about 1990 there was a like two million years of John Lennon or something concert they were at it and they did the terrible slow down bluesy I feel fine I, I couldn't be doing with that anyway if you think we're, we're sold out they have nothing on this they're trying to get rid of them on Monday Crikey, I'm gonna do everything myself! I said, Stow! 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 Ah! Neil! Oh, hi, Viv. <laughs> Still trying to save the world, eh, Neil? It's money that makes the world go around, not peace and love. You can't love your neighbour and make a decent profit. Well, you can with friends provident, actually, Viv. I'm 
talking serious money. Every man for himself. Friends who? Friends Provident. They're really big in ethical investment. Ethical? Yeah. They believe in keeping your money out of anything heavy. And I suppose you stand to make a heavy profit, do you, Neil? Well, actually, I already have, Vivian. Well, how'd they manage it? Talk to my breadhead. Ask your breadhead about stewardship ethical investments from Friends Provident. We've grown big by being recommended. Okay, I'm just going to cut to the chase here. I was a huge obsessive fan of the young ones. I used to sneakily watch it on the Black and White Portable Series 2 on the original transmission. I had all the books were in, including the comic relief ones they appeared in. I had all the records. I had the computer game. I had Alexis Sales singles, Neil's Book of the Dead, all kinds of things. This, though, somehow passed me by completely. I knew nothing about it. Until I actually saw you talking about it on a comedy forum one day, Jem, explain this to everybody. I, again, it seems to be—I seem to be the only person that knew anything about it. And even for me, it was a very kind of shady memory at the time because you know that was probably kind of pre or early YouTube. But now it is there, I think, on YouTube in all its glory. I'm sure you've got it, I presume. But yeah, no, I just remember being a kid and with my brothers watching telly, and suddenly there's Nigel Planer and Adrian Emerson because you know even in single figures we were comedy geeks enough to know who they were. And the funny thing is that so many years after the young ones, it was. Only about, they were still probably only in their early 30s or something at the time. But it was a yuppie, Neil, and, no, no, it, well, sorry. Well, they're both yuppies. There's different flavours of yuppies. There's a sort of a city boy yuppie, Viv, and a hippie yuppie, Neil, at the supermarket, clashing trolleys and uh, flogging stuff. I've, I've already forgotten what it, they were flogging. What were they flogging, Tim? Friends Providence, it was, insurance. Yeah. yeah I've forgotten, even if you mentioned it just now. But... I don't think we really kind of uh, cared very much about selling out, even at the time. We were just excited that they'd survived the bus crash as they'd survived, you know, being trampled by medieval knights and having enormous eclairs falling on them, and that we could we could all pretend to ourselves that the young ones were still out there somewhere. Well, they survived it because they're in the comic relief stage show. Everyone forgets that, and they reference the bus crash. Well, that hasn't had a decent re- enough release. That's the problem, isn't it? To be out there yeah. for people to know. But this, you know, certainly shit had. I mean, it's not good. It's not funny. I'm sure Rick Mail took the piss pretty uh, savagely at the time because neither him nor Lisa nor Ben would have got a penny out of them just saying Mike Viv. So I'm sure they, they, they split that friend's whatever money between the two of them. But it was one of those things that you did have to fight. I mean, it's, that's why, you know, it's perfect for your lovely podcast, because you really had to fight your corner if you remember it. And, and you know, you, it was one of those things where people could always convince you that it had never happened at all. Adverts are one of the ultimate things for that, especially because also you get very regional adverts as well. So you, sometimes you can, you know, if you, if you could be in an airport in Quebec or something, and if you see somebody from your region, you could do a sort of certain regional jingle and they'll kind of recognise it. But it, it's, it's so compartmentalised and adverts could just play two, three times. And if the people couldn't afford to run it again, it would never be seen again. And sometimes, I mean, I've just been I've just finished doing this Fry and Laurie book, you know, and there's so many adverts, obviously, that they did. But it's difficult to track down, you know, advertising is a strange world to research, you know, to get in there and, and find any footage thankfully i think the entire alliance and leicester saga is all on youtube 
but they're completely without context. They're sort of taken from scraps of video and everything. So if you want to sort of tell a potted history of, you know, Mostyn and Friend, another thing people don't really kind of appreciate from those Fry and Laurie Abbott is, is Peter Mostyn, which is a name that, that Hugh used a lot. But nobody ever knew Stephen's character's name. And I, I offered Stephen and Hugh a chance. Actually, no, now I come to think of it, Hugh did come up with a name for that character in 2017 when I asked him. And you'll have to buy the book to find out what that is. Yeah, well, I've got one. Bizarrely, again, with the young ones theme that nobody else seems to remember, and there's certainly no trace of it online, which was around the time of, you know, uh, I think it was just before the Living Doll single. It was, you know, Young's Frozen Foods. I know of them. They did an advert where sort of, it was obviously somebody who had never seen the young ones had been told, do something a bit like the young ones, where, you know, like a teddy boy and the glam rocker or what you know like four completely wrong archetypes came in and I was going the youngs ones we love the youngs ones give us youngs ones get them on our plates basically all verging on copyright infringement but there's no sign of it anywhere and I, I love things that are that pastiches that are completely wrong as well well it, it sounds like a fever dream to me but then again so would uh, some of the things I remember sound like to you there was supposedly E.T. was in an advert apparently for years that, that we never ever saw again as according to my mum this was circa when was E.T. 81 I think so circa 1983 I think I remember me and my brothers getting home my mum saying there's this new advert which I've just seen with E.T. in it and we must have watched every possible moment of commercial TV up, up till bedtime for the next three years waiting to see E.T. come back, you know, to Earth to advertise something. Do you think she meant Maureen Lippmann as B.T. from the B.T. ads? Had I known that was the case, then I could have dropped it earlier. What was he supposedly advertising? That's the thing. I think it might have been a kind of a... I think it was a baby bio kind of thing. And it was someone with green fingers. And my mum's... Thankfully, I mean, I should really be a stand-up comedian, Tim, because I do have one of those mums whose whole, you know, reason, raison d'etre in life is to just kind of troll you by talking absolute bollocks that sounds, that seems completely natural and normal to her. But I think it was a gardener with sort of long fingers and she went, oh, that's E.T., that'll do. She didn't matter to her that to her young sons, the idea of E.T. is a definite thing that, that, you know, meant a lot to us and the idea that there was an advert with it in would capture our souls and force us to 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 hunt it down no matter what to her just saying oh somebody with long fingers is et and now it's time for your tea uh, and she got on with her life and we couldn't do that for years afterwards and if it had been almost anything else we could have tracked it down by now but uh, as you say adverts just disappear well let's make this into an advert that doesn't disappear then because Gem, i believe you've recently read some of your tales of britain uh, radio bristol yes indeed just a little kind of two minute i was quite worried about advertising on the bbc but there's sort of little sort of two and a half minute stories with an invitation to visit talesofbritain.com and further the campaign for british folklore in the 21st century uh so yeah they're, they're going out uh, over a week and at the time of release they should still be on the iPlayer. so give them a listen jeb it's been a pleasure thank you very much Not On Your Telly by Tim Worthington. From Fish to Fun to Ski Boy, the ultimate guide to TV that time forgot. Find out more at timworthington.blogspot.co.uk. 